1: As a nutritionist, we certainly talk about food and behaviors with food, but we don't operate in a vacuum. We are emotional creatures. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to
0: up-level your life, health, and happiness. Your host, Integrative Dietitian Nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, onto the show. All right, today on the Less Stress Life podcast, I have Melaney Rogers, and I cannot wait to be serenaded by her lovely Australian accent the next several minutes. So she is the founder and executive director of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center and Melaney Rogers Nutrition in New York City. She is the founder and recent past president of the New York City chapter of International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals and a board member of many other associations. <laughs> She's a dynamic speaker and has been invited to present nationally and internationally on scientific Discoveries and Treatment Approaches Within the Eating Disorder Profession. And I really wanted to bring her in today as we talk through body image and body love this month to talk about disordered eating and body image. So welcome, Melaney.
1: Oh, Krista, a pleasure to be here with you today.
0: So I'd love to hear how you kind of got into this space because we both know that this isn't part of the curriculum necessarily so much in, in the nutrition world. And maybe that's changing over the last 5-10 years. But how did you transition into this very needed area? I mean, where I live, it's actually kind of hard to find people to work with in this space. I mean, it's not as prolific as it as it should probably be.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right there, Krista. To just respond to that before I, you know, talk about my path into this world, there isn't any training for RDs, both of you and I being uh, RDs, therapists, psychiatrists, MDs. There is no eating disorder training. And hopefully, you know, we're trying to change that. I actually have started teaching a class to the master's level nutrition students at New York University here in New York, where I am, and speaking to other colleagues in the field about trying to get more eating disorder tracks, at least at the very least, for for RDs because as a registered dietitian where we're working with our clients with their relationship with food inevitably whether we desire to specialize in eating disorders or not we are going to come across a lot of disordered eating, uh, dysregulation around eating and sometimes full-blown eating disorders so essential for us to be trained. So therefore the question being how did I get into this field given that there is no training I actually came to America from Australia to study at New York University uh, to do my master's there as a registered dietitian. And I chose New York because I wanted to be close to the research. Australia is a large country but has a smaller population. In fact, the whole population of New York City could fit into the uh, size of Australia. And so, therefore, you know, uh, research is being done more prolifically outside of Australia. And New York City has an obesity research center. And I wanted to be close to that research because I thought that as a nutritionist, obesity, unfortunately, is not going anywhere soon. And I wanted to know everything I could about it so that I could be hopefully the most helpful in the field as a obesity specialist. But it was while I was there actually doing my internship, Krista, that I was exposed to binge eating disorder. And uh, what was so awesome is, that, and this is 20 years ago, mind you. So this is way before we had a diagnostic code for binge eating disorder. And what was going on there is that the uh, center was treating clients for binge eating disorder and they had a multidisciplinary team doing that treatment. By multidisciplinary team for listeners, I mean that they had not just a nutritionist working with the client around their relationship with food, but also a therapist working with them around their emotions and emotion regulation and emotional connection to food and other areas of their life. They had a psychiatrist they also had an MD, and they also had a sports physiologist, and it blew me away because for me as a nutritionist, we certainly talk about food and behaviors with food, but We don't operate in a vacuum. We are emotional creatures. And so the psychological aspect of eating just fascinated me. And so that's what got me hooked. And then, of course, once I understood more about what is an eating disorder and what is disordered eating and that it's very multifaceted, I was just wanting – I started with that lens, excuse me, with having now have wearing that lens or being able to put that lens on. I was then able to view and see disordered eating in a lot of my clients. Clients who were coming in for, you know, more typical things such as, you know, I want to lose 20 pounds. I seem to lose the same 20 pounds and gain it again over time. And I started to see just so much disordered eating in that population. So that really got me hooked. And I think the other piece there that didn't motivate me to go into the field, but once I was in the field and I started to go to a lot of conferences, because that's the only way you can actually get educated, is to go to association conferences. And as I was learning more and more and more about the etiology and where this comes from and what we believe is happening for people that develop eating disorders, I realized that my own very, very orthorexic, over-exercising bout in my 20s that I fully pulled out of, fortunately, was actually an eating disorder. So I'm a fully recovered clinician myself. But I didn't realize, like many people out there, that I actually had an eating disorder. I was in complete denial of it until I started to learn more about what are eating disorders, what constitutes an eating disorder, who's at high risk for an eating disorder, to put the piece together that I had my own. And so that second piece was pivotal because it gave me insight into the way that our minds work with the anxiety, especially in the obsessiveness, uh, that I would not otherwise truly be able to appreciate unless I had lived that experience. So those two elements together were just, you know, I found my passion. And so this is what I do. This is what I love doing. And to underscore your earlier comment, Krista, I'm on a mission to not just help and treat our clients, but also help and educate the next generation of healthcare professionals out there so that they can understand this illness and understand the severity of it and also just how prolific it is, yet it's a little bit sight unseen still in society.
0: I think that you're in a great position with some of your volunteer or board affiliations to create programming, et cetera, for different curriculums. However, this is a perfect segue. I would love to talk more about like disordered eating and that yo-yo. I want to spend a lot of time over there. But before we go there, you said some useful things. So I was kind of wondering if you'd had this experience. And when you have experienced something, you are usually better able to help someone with it because you have an intimate knowledge that you can't learn somewhere else. Like you have, as you said, you understand the intricacies of the anxiety in the brain, etc. But my question is Oh, I have a couple of questions from the way you told the story. You said you realized you're orthoresc- sick, which if someone doesn't know what that word means, it means like, and maybe you should give the proper definition. It means you are obsessed with health, essentially. And so it's like everything kind of revolves around those decisions. But you said you noticed that you had these orthorexic behaviors in your 20s. Was it beyond your 20s that you realized this? Or were you actively still living in that space at that time? Or was, were you in your 30s? And you realized, oh, in my 20s, I acted more like this. So I'm curious about that first. And then I have a follow up question.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, while I was in it, so to speak, um, it was, it started off as orthorexia, but certainly went into anorexia, borderlining on bulimia. The definitions are irrelevant other than it got really, really severely significant with attempts at weight restriction and massive compulsive exercising, obsessive compulsive exercising that left me in a place of just, that was pretty much my life for my, for much of my twenties. I mean, obviously many of us are highly functioning, so it was, doing my career and doing all sorts of things. And it was only through a sports injury, actually, that left me unable to run at all that led to weight restoration, which fortunately, I guess now I understand, put my brain back online where I was able to kind of pull out of it. And I got some therapy for anxiety, et cetera, which is, you know, about 80% of us with eating disorders struggle with that. But it was, you know, during that whole piece, I just thought I was, you know, maybe uber healthy, maybe a little bit overzealous with being super healthy and a runner, prided myself on being a marathon runner, all that sort of stuff, but not fessing up to the fact that I was obsessed about weight and scale and hated my body and body image and all of that sort of stuff. I knew that when I was in it, but I didn't know it was an eating disorder. I was accused of having an eating disorder by you know well-meaning family members, but that does nothing. That just builds shame. So it wasn't until I was in my 30s and I was gathering information about what exactly is an eating disorder, what are the symptoms and behaviors and thought processes that I was able to look back and say, you know, that wasn't just a time when I struggled with weight and body image and overexercise. That actually was a full-blown eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So it was in my 30s looking back that I realized the severity of what it was. Mm -hmm. Sure.
0: So I kind of wonder, I'm curious about this because it's not an area I've experienced. It makes me just more curious. And so there's some stats out there about people who go into nutrition for schooling, a large percentage of them have disordered eating and it's like they're interested in food and then they go in and specialize in it. So I'd love to hear if you know the stats on that. And in general, do you feel that that was part of why you kind of gravitated to learning about eating disorders as well? Because subconsciously you really like you realized somewhere that, Oh, I feel like I resonate or I am just intrigued by this. I'm just kind of curious because it feels like people when they specialize in this have personal experiences. And I'm just wondering if that's what you see as well, which I think is great, right? Because if you have personal experiences, you can help someone in a better way than if you don't yeah. if you don't understand it, right? But I'm just yeah. kind of curious your perspective because I'm concerned about the people going into the field that have unresolved disordered eating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's something we have to watch out for because it is a high percentage. Like the nutrition class that I'm teaching at NYU, master's level nutrition, clinical nutrition students who are going on to be RDs, we know statistically that 25% of college students across the board are at risk for an eating disorder. That's before you then look at subspecialties of nutrition students and then look at A place like NYU and the demographic that that tends to collect, I would estimate that at least 50 to 75% of my class on any given year has disordered eating. And we talk about that right at the get-go that, you know, I don't know who they are and that's not necessarily my business as their professor, but we talk about a trigger warning that, you know, many of us are drawn to this field because of our own challenges perhaps or our own curiosity or things we've observed ourselves. So certainly a very high percentage and you're correct that we have to make sure that those students who are going into the field, if they are or have struggled, that they're well on their way to recovery and having worked out some of those i Concerns because otherwise you're at high risk for transference, which basically means putting your stuff onto your client, which Mm. is incredibly unethical. Mm. And to your point, I think maybe on some level, when I went through my struggles in my 20s, I was distressed about the idea that in my mind, logically, I could say, okay, I'm going to only eat X, Y, and Z. But behaviorally, I ended up doing A, B, and C. And so, you know, that is a psychological process. But I I think it actually, the idea of the psychology behind eating was planted in my mind many years before that, which is why I decided I wanted to be an RD in the first place. And that is that my grandmother struggled with obesity and uh, heart disease and later died from a heart attack at a very young age. I was 10 at the time, and that was the first close family member I'd ever lost And I remember it had such an impact on me that, you know, during that process of her heart attacks and going to see her in the ICU, which was, I I guess, very traumatic looking back, I remember thinking, I know my grandmother knows what to eat and I know that she knows what to do to be healthy, but somehow she's not able to. I don't understand what that is. So I guess from a very young age, I understood that it was just more complicated than just this is what you eat, follow it. So that emotional, psychological aspect. But it was at that age that I decided I needed to do something to help people not get heart attacks in the first place, Mm -hmm. which in that young mind, uh, surrounded by doctors in an ICU, I thought, okay, I've got to be a doctor. That's what I need to do. But then as I got closer to understanding, once I was at college, in college, excuse me, pre-med, realizing that doctors treat after the fact, they don't treat to help prevent so then I found out about this world of nutrition which I didn't even know about until then and that was my why I decided to go into the field in the first place so I think that psychological interest was there and also teetering around that time was the idea of do I do medicine or even psychology. And, therefore, and then nutrition came up. So I think that was there. But I, I think you're right. My own lived experience during my 20s when I was in great distress and anxiety around food and food behaviors, I think also contributed as well to the fascination. And to your point as well, Krista, I think that people who've had their own lived experience, again, with the note there that having worked through that, provide enormous insight and compassion because they've gone through that really difficult journey.
0: You know, you said some things indirectly I want to highlight. You went from being really moved by your grandmother dying of obesity to changing your career path because you realized maybe I can do more in this area, etc. But what I really hear there is depth and time to discern and learn and educate yourself and grow experiences. So, I'm going to try to say this properly, but sometimes people become very interested in nutrition. So they're like, I'm going to try to figure out how to help people with nutrition as fast as possible. And so maybe they'll take like a short course or something and then start to give nutrition advice. I don't have like major feelings about this. This is not about that. But what I notice when I have these conversations is there's a lack of depth. And so there's a lack of like years to kind of like go through a journey and understand what people are going through. I can remember things I said in preceptor, experiences and internship experiences, as I was learning how to understanding how to most effectively help someone. And at first, you were really horrible at it, right? Because you may, you know, accidentally relay your own experiences, you may just not have enough experience to like, step back, pull back, and speak more thoughtfully. I remember... I'll try to paraphrase this cuz it's not super important but I remember just working in an outpatient clinic one summer with a dietitian and I remember being so like alarmed at the health issues and and thinking like well what if we just like tell them exactly you know what happens when you have diabetes for a long time like I was basically moving into like scare tactic. And she's like, no, (laughs) no, that doesn't work. And so it's like, you know, you just don't know these things until you have the opportunity to kind of be around it and learn how to be graceful in your field a little bit. And so there's just something I like, you know, this is the intellectual stuff that you start to see over time. Like, oh, there's just that lack of depth. And what I hear from you is a greater depth. Like you didn't just start, you didn't go into one thing. You arrived at that by realizing, oh, there's a need for this. And I have this issue. So anyway.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's really great.
0: Go ahead. So, you know, this is all good food for thought. So what questions can a person ask themselves to determine if he or she might have an issue with their food relationship?
1: Absolutely. Great question. So first and foremost, I think there's a really great question. And that is to ask yourself, how much of my day am I spending thinking about food, calories, body image, weight, how much I exercised and how much I burnt off today. And if you just pause and just think about, is it preoccupying? Is it on your mind a lot? Is there a lot of background noise going on? If the answer is no, I get up, I'm hungry, I eat, and then I'm full and then I stop and I don't think about food until I'm hungry again. And then I just look around and I go, okay, I'll have this. Then I eat, I'm full, I stop. I don't think about food again until the next meal, then I would say you have a very or not very, I don't know the degrees of it, but you know, you're not obsessive in that definition. If you are waking up and going, okay, what's my weight today? Okay. That means I have to do this with breakfast. All right. And I've got to do my do my run and it's got to be X number of minutes. So that means that I can then have breakfast and only one slice of bread today. I've got to go easy on the carbs because you know, the weekend's coming up and I'm going to be drinking this weekend. Da, 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 and that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Then that is suggestive that there's some obsessive thinking going on and it's not a neutral relationship with food. That's a red flag. And the reason it's a red flag is because people who are living like that have a lot of anxiety around food and body image and weight, and there is a lot of extra energy and distress going on usually around their relationship with food and their body image. So, those would be the tell, easy, down and dirty, quick question to ask yourself about your relationship with food. And then, of course, the other piece is how much are you manipulating food or jumping from diet to diet, et cetera, in pursuit of a thin ideal that may not be part of your genetic makeup? You know, I mean, we see a lot of clients going back and forth between, you know, the latest diet, a lot of comparison on social media and probably most importantly, enormous amounts of body image distress, which usually is driving the behavior. So
0: this is a great place to ask, how does social media impact body
1: image? Pretty much it's quite powerful. And I wouldn't just throw, you know, social media under the bus along. What I would have to say is that any form of visual media, so historically before social media, in my day, when I was, uh, you know, grappling with my own eating disorder, it was fashion magazines, you know, that was your main imagery, and of course, TV. And now we add social media to the mix, and social media is probably even more potent than TV and more potent than fashion magazines because it's ever present, mm-hmm. and people are online a lot, and there's a lot of comparison going on all day, not just at different periods in the day where you might get home and finally have time to watch some TV. And you compare yourself to celebrities on TV or models on TV or whatever it might be, or you you finally get a chance to pick up a fashion magazine, compare yourself to the models or billboards, you know, that sort of thing. So with social media, it's that much more potent because it's right in your pocket, it's right in your face all day. So if you think about dose And exposure, frequency, it's exorbitant compared to other forms of media. So we know that any form of visual comparison increases distress around body image. And again, knowing that social media has a high potency for that, therefore, we're seeing high correlations of enormous amount of body image distress and anxiety with social media use and depression. Actually, we've seen a great significant uptick in depression as well mm
0: Yeah, that's a great point. So you talk a little bit about how mental health issues and eating disorders are on the rise. How prevalent are they now? And are is part of the rise? I mean, there's so many reasons, right? Do you feel like it's worse now than it was 20 years ago? I mean, just as you've been in this space for a while, so you've been able mm-hmm. to just fully get to see it. So what is your opinion?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, Not even I think so, based upon what we're seeing with the research. and You know, let's look at elementary schools, right, because that's where body image distress and ideas about what one should look like and people's attitude to the F word, which is fat in this case in our industry. And you'll see that there's an uptick compared to a decade ago where they did similar surveys about kids' sense of valuing kids who are fat. And what they found is that now – It's about a 50-50% split in elementary school between both girls and boys who are expressing body image distress and a desire to diet. You know, I think there was a, a horrendous study, This same study type was done. I believe it might be 15 years ago where they asked elementary school kids if they would rather be fat or disabled in a wheelchair or have cancer. And the kids would rather be disabled or have cancer than be fat. Yeah. Which is horrific, which tells you about how toxic weight stigma is, And that's a representation of our culture. That's a representation of what the kids are picking up around them, of how bad being fat is. Yeah. So, yeah. That hurts to hear. Yeah, it does. It's painful, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So those studies are being done and we're seeing that each decade – we're seeing more and more kids concerned about body image and who are concerned about fat being fat and are you know have a real disgust if you will for being overweight and fat so if you use that as a gauge of the next wave the next generation, if they're already coming into the world with these, this internalized messaging about weight stigma, then we could only predict with social media also being part of their natural tendencies because they're kids who are born into the digital world, our expectation in the field is that we're just going to see more and more eating disorders proliferate, particularly because the thin ideal is still very much part of our culture.
0: So I think this is a great place to talk about the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. Early on in our conversation, you mentioned essentially yo-yo dieting and a preoccupation, you know, how you saw that in practice early on that people would go up and go down and go up and go down. And I will occasionally see that as well. And I feel like it's very generational. There definitely was, is, I mean, Sometimes when you're in this space, you're like, oh, I guess I've blocked that out. But I know the last generation really, there were a lot of weight loss programs and the marketing was very specific. It was very like, actually, specifically generic. Uh, like, you have to exercise a lot and eat less. That's like the biggest... When people come to me with that feeling or that statement that they've told themselves in their mind, I kind of assign that to almost a general... Like, oh, you're in that space, you know, that was like just how it was at that time. And so we try to overcome that. But then at the same time, I was telling you off air that I work with people that have food reactions. And so those are very valid. And we work on overcoming those. So people are, they can eat food and enjoy it, right? And so they're not miserable when they eat because that's a real issue as well, unfortunately. And then yeah. I'll occasionally have someone who because of their probable orthorexic tendencies, right? So their obsession, it's coming off on their children, right? So they express some things. And so anytime I'm working with kids, I'm like, we have to keep really positive body image here, guys. Like we have to talk really positively because we don't want to create issues. You know, you said professionals have this problem, but as parents, we have this problem. We can transfer our own insecurities or concerns or issues onto our children. That's always so like this is relevant to all of us. But I've heard uh, concerning things right from parents sometimes that's a bit disordered. And so let's talk about the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder.
1: Absolutely, a great question. It really comes down to frequency and intensity. So, eating disorders and disordered eating is the same thing, but it's on a spectrum. So, you know, for someone who is restricting calories and losing massive amounts of weight, and then they meet certain criteria, diagnostic criteria, we would say that they have anorexia. But there are a lot of people out there who are, you know, have cut calories and are overexercising and maybe they're at a lower weight than they're genetically programmed to be at, and they just kind of hover there. They don't ever end up in hospital because of medical complications from their weight loss, but they may actually be on the cusp of more anorexic-like presentation, but it's disordered eating. And the same for bulimia or binge eating disorder. And what we tend to see, what I look for is not necessarily those types of symptoms, but I look for, for example, as you mentioned, Krista, you know, diet books, etc., was a you know a generational thing. But now, what we've got is orthorexia, and uh, these are, are ways of eating that one might even say a lifestyle plans and veganism, of course. And please, with all due respect to sincerely, with our ethical vegans out there, I fully support anyone's choices around what they choose to eat. And my concern is when it becomes problematic for the individual. But we see a lot of people who pursue vegan, a vegan life plan, lifestyle or eating plan, because it is a way for them to hopefully control their weight. Mm-hmm. So anything that is I an mean, orthorexia even or gluten-free or I'm going to eliminate you know, dairy and for whatever the reason might be, If it's around weight loss and managing weight, then I'm curious about what's really going on. And so those are more manifestations of disordered eating.
0: That makes sense. And I love how you like were really specific there because you're right. It's what is the purpose of this thing? Is it because I'm really congested after I drink milk? Or is it because I think that this is going to help me lose weight? And so it's kind of like looking at your reason behind things is important. So you mentioned that family members had accused you of having an eating disorder and that just built guilt. So this is important because sometimes... When you're inside of a bottle, you can't see the outside of the bottle. How do you help someone with an eating disorder if you don't want to accuse them? Because this is a challenging, this is something that in our profession, we need to understand how to help people better.
1: Absolutely. Well, similar to what you said earlier, you know, when we're young and excited as a new RD, we kind of go in and we're like a bull in a china shop and (laughs) we're giving out recommendations left, right, and center, and it just overwhelms the client and may inadvertently shame them. I think, you know, in my family's case, by accusing you and getting angry with you and telling you that you're ugly at that weight, we know that shaming people doesn't change behavior. (laughs) So, a good way to approach someone is is gently, compassionately compassionately, and lovingly, which is to say to someone, hey, I just wanted to talk to you and let you know how much I love you and I, I've noticed you know, that your weight shifted lately, whether it be going up or going down. And I just want to check in and make sure you're okay and let you know that I'm here and I love you and is there something going on that I could help you with? That would be how to approach. And also know that part of this stuff is it's very secretive and there can be a lot of shame around it. And people can feel like they're not on in control of it actually. So their immediate response from the person who's struggling will be denial, usually. And it could be anger as well. So just know that. But then they know. They know that you approach them and then maybe at another time you might just check in. Yeah. Um and so it's kind of a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit over time type of approach. And you know what? Our clients tell us this all the time. They'll say, you know what? No one ever said anything or they'll say, you know, there was one of my dearest friends who a couple of years ago, you know, gave me a hug and said, I love you. And I think that there's something going on. And, you know, I'll join you and take you to a support group or shall we go online together and have a look at resources. There's also a terrific website that gives a lot of suggestions on how to handle this particular conversation. The association is NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association, and they have great toolkits in there for parents and families and friends of how to approach a loved one who might be struggling. Cool.
0: I love it. I think we can all like kind of dial back to that approximate 30-ish minute section and write that down and practice saying that because I'm guessing, I mean, I think with how common this is, I think we can all practice reaching out and telling someone we love <laughs> if we need to, you know, how much you care about them and to let them know that you're there for them if they need something. I think no matter what, you can apply that conversation. It doesn't matter if it's disordered And I think you can apply that to
1: any place someone is struggling. So. Exactly, exactly. Substance abuse is a, another example. Someone's drinking too much, especially now with COVID. We're seeing a lot of, you know, excessive drinking and other behaviors. Yeah, absolutely, Krista, across the board. Mm-hmm. Shaming doesn't work. Yes,
0: So you mentioned being fully recovered. What does recovery look like? Sometimes I'll get someone and I'll tell you why I would love to know this. Sometimes I get someone into my practice, because I try to make sure this is well screened for, hey, do you have a history of eating disorder? And I'll have someone tell me, yes, but I'm completely over this. This is what I did. I mean, how do you know? Like, what does recovery look like, essentially?
1: Mm. full recovery what it looks like there's still some debate in our industry about it what it looks like and for most people they think of just behavior cessation i.e you're not you're not restricting anymore you're not binging anymore you're not purging it anymore you're not over exercising anymore but it's more than that that's just the start point because these are biopsychosocial illnesses that means that they're multifaceted there's a number of pieces to this there's a genetic piece, as a psychological piece, there's the nutritional pieces, medical pieces. Therefore, full recovery is making sure that each of those different areas are tended to and are repaired. So a shorthand way is saying that your relationship with food is fully neutral, body image is neutral. It doesn't have to be positive, but just neutral. You're dealing with underlying psychological um, aspects, which are usually partnered with an eating disorder, such as anxiety, that doesn't usually go away. So even after you've fully recovered from an eating disorder, there may be bipolar, there may be anxiety, there may be depression that you'll need to manage for the rest of your life. A strong personality trait that is associated with eating disorders is perfectionism. So that needs to be understood and managed as well. And, you know, over control and those sorts of personality traits as well. So it's multifaceted in in that respect. And when I talk about being fully recovered, it means that I don't give food a thought. All food is neutral. It's pizza, it's sushi, it's salad. I don't look at it and think about the calories. I completely rely on hunger, fullness, satiety, food preferences. I love my Doritos. (laughs) I don't weigh myself. I try to be body image neutral. It's hard in this society to do so. So I think that's something that we have to constantly work on because it's hard to not be influenced by what's going on around you. And I still live in this society. Anxiety for me means talk therapy. And for some of us, that also means medication. So I'm managing that. And I'm aware of my perfectionistic tendencies. So I have done a lot of work on that as well. The goal here is that should there be a big stressor in my life or anyone who has an eating disorder? The goal is that you recovered enough that your default behavior is not to go back into weight loss and weight behaviors and food behaviors under a big stressor. And though, you know, gosh, we're all vulnerable to a relapse, but that's what full recovery looks like. So, for example, in my case, after I fully recovered, I got married, I got divorced, I then had a child later on in a second marriage, all of those are huge triggers that we know for many people can mean going back into your eating disorder. And I planned with my team around those events to make sure that I was steady state enough to not go back into those behaviors. The thing is though, Krista, you never lose the genetic risk because it's a genetic predisposition. So an eating disorder could always be re-triggered. If I were to go on a diet and lose weight Below what my body weight is supposed to be genetically we believe that is the trigger that turns on the expression of the eating disorder that's our current theory anyway so I know I can never go on a diet or never play around with my weight and I don't do that because I never want to go back there so you can say well you are never fully recovered then because you're always at risk it doesn't matter you know you can get caught up in are you fully recovered or are you just in recovery For my mind The way that I see it is that I'm fully recovered because it's just not part of my life. But there is a risk that I have to respect and make sure that I don't go back.
0: So this is like that would have been a great place to just close it. But since you're talking about genetic predisposition, I don't do very much in nutrigenomics anymore. But is there actual SNPs or genes that are associated with the predisposition toward disorder eating? If so, what are they?
1: Oh, gosh, yeah, there's some great research coming out of Cynthia. Uh, there's a number of really cool research facilities here in the States and Europe that are looking into this. But because it's a multifaceted illness and because, therefore, there could be entryway from different pathways, we're not convinced that we're going to find the gene or the set of genes, for example. Right now, we're finding a little bit of irregularity in uh, you know a couple of genes that, predispose people towards how we view our body or how we get feedback from hungerfulness internal cues but there's also research about you know feedback around not uh, dysregulation in different pathways related to how we experience appetite how we experience reward with certain foods where we might be oversensitive to reward and therefore seek it out more and more which means overeating for example. So I think what their current thinking in research right now is that they don't believe they're going to find one set of genes, but rather multiple different pathways because there are so many systems involved in this.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So this has been, I found this conversation awesome, enlightening. I hope that the people listening, the health professionals listening and the other health savvy people listening, share it with someone else. Because I think there's a lot of really great things. I think we can all take something away here, whether it's how to help someone going through a struggle, whether it's how to identify in your own life if you are having issues with your food relationship or body image. I think there's something here for everyone. So, Malini, where can people find more of your
1: resources online? Absolutely. Our website is balanced tx.com that's balance with a d tx.com you can check us out there and also you can go online and sign up for a free 20-minute discovery call with one of my team members if you feel that maybe you're struggling with something or maybe a loved one is and we can help you out with resources nationally we can help you out with resources we're very well connected and also if you happen to be in new york or we can do some virtual support for you as well Awesome.
0: And I know you have a non-diet guide to wellness called Redefining Wellness on your website. So there'll be links to your website in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to seeing kind of how your work continues to grow and you continue to help more people, especially those going through school, which I really think you're very well positioned to do.
1: Thanks so much, Christo. It was a great pleasure. Have a great day.